You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Nathan Englander, who is the author of the collection, What We Talk About When We Talk About Anne Frank, as well as the international best-selling story collection for the relief of unbearable urges, and the novel, The Ministry of Special Cases. He was the 2012 recipient of the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award and a finalist for the 2013 Pulitzer Prize for what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. His short fiction essays have appeared in the New Yorker, New York Times, Atlantic Monthly, Washington Post, as well as the O. Henry Prize Stories, and numerous editions of the Best American Short Stories, including 100 Years of the Best American Short Stories. Translated into 20 languages, he was selected as one of 20 writers for the 21st century by the New Yorker. He is currently a distinguished writer in residence at New York University. His most recent book is the novel Dinner at the Center of the Earth. And it's a book that has many themes that we think about here at the Spy Museum, and I'm looking forward to talking to him about them today. So welcome, Nathan. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Oh, I'm uh, both excited to talk to you and so excited to be in this museum. Very. So, the, I mean, speaking of that, I mean, this novel has some really complicated themes. You know, I, I like to say this is not a beach read because there's there's complicated themes that resonate throughout everything from Israel and the Mossad to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to growing up Jewish in America, the right-left divide in Israel, uh, which we'll talk about right off the bat because to me that's really interesting, uh, but also things like the morality of the fight against terror, things like indefinite detention and black sites. So let me ask you the, the kind of the basic straightforward question off the top is, what was the impetus for this book? Because it's different than the stuff, a lot of the things you've written in the past. Yeah. So, again, that's funny. I was just talking to someone who was not a big reader. On, and she was like, is there a theme that links your book? And I was like, is, you know, is it a series? Like a mystery right. series? Is it a series? I was like, are Jews a series? <laughs> but uh, but my point is I, I really don't. I, I see the outside stuff like, yes, this is a this is a huge like uh, structural shift for me and genre shift for me. Like I really it has a real political thriller element, which was so much fun for me both to explore and then to get to write. But if you look at those ideas, like I'm always obsessed, you know, if we're doing a spy cast, like I am obsessed with the gray space on all fronts. Like if you look at the novel from a decade before, that was the dirty war in Argentina, mm -hmm. which is about the deaths of Parasitos. I'm really, yes, interested in indefinite detention and, you know, how abduction works, how justice works on all 
all those fronts. But in this case, I moved to Israel in 1996 for the peace process. It was really happening. Uh, you can't see my hair turning gray uh, on a <laughs> podcast. But it's, you know, what I... Again, we know what the other choice is. You know, you can get older or die. I, I'm thus far choosing to get older, consciously at least, as best I can. But, you know, to talk about it now, you'd be like, oh, the peace process, you know, what an absurd notion. It was right there. Right. It was happening. It was a signature way. It almost happened so many times with so many different people. And, and I just, when I watched in a very literal sense, not just metaphorical, when I watched an Intifada 2, when I watched everybody not everybody it only takes a takes a lot of good people to build a lot of good things you know and i say from our great nation and very few people to burn certain right. institutions down when i watched a very few people light the match and burn down that peace process i just never it i just never shook it it broke my heart personally i want my peace back and i'm very you know i've never lost my fascination i moved back to america in 2001 at the height of the second intifada uh, those I call those the two bad September. September 2000, we got into Fada 2, and then I moved back to New York City, you know, September 2001 right. when I moved into my apartment. But, um, but yeah, I just am always obsessed watching the politics shift, watching the peace recede, and, yeah, basically I'm here to say I want my peace back. Well, I think that's interesting. Most of our audience, and it's an exceptionally educated audience, um, Many of them are American. They may not understand the intricacies of the Israeli political system. I mean, it's it's uh, it's as bifurcated in many cases as the American one is. Um, you know, and and what's interesting if you look at the American political system in the United States, the last election somehow someone like Hillary Clinton is considered a liberal, which. If you track her oh, she's, past yeah. record, she's certainly not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But compared to where the right in the United States has gone, she becomes this kind oh. of uber liberal. It, it seems like Israel is following some of the I same lo path. I love that you're saying that. Like, that's, you know, uh, you know, right. She is, you know, as military stuff, her position, she's yeah. a strong person. Yes, this is not right. She's not a dove on that front, right. on those positions. And, like... Well, this is so you've hit on two gigantical things. You're like, yes, I prepared for this, <laughs> but like two gigantical things. One, I have notes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. They're there. I see them. <laughs> but uh, two gigantical things are both, you know, how perceptions shift. You know, I when I was there and there was a real left wing in Israel and there there was what. Again, I say I'm frozen in time, but the center, the center has shifted so far over that our friends will be like, you know, Oh yeah, I'm I'm a liberal, and I'll be like, you sound pretty radically conservative to me, based on when I left, you know, and vice versa. Like, but I also think it's that notion of perception that that shifts the information we get. I I feel like it's like when you go through customs, and they're like, did you bring, you know, did you, did you touch any farm animals? Did yeah. you bring back fruit? Like, what I didn't want to bring back from Israel is the dual realities, which is such a part of this book, because I think one of the central things I saw in that peace process. You know, is people with goodwill. You and I could have a two-hour argument on school vouchers. Like, take a side. I'll say I'm a I'm a state school boy. Tax dollars should go to that. If you're rich enough, and you'll say like whatever. Everyone can. That's us disagreeing and taking sides. But there, it got clear to me. You know, people are coming in to help and you know bring 
two peoples on two separate ends of a spectrum together. I'm like, it was two functioning realities. You know what I'm saying? I lived in Jerusalem. My Palestinian neighbors lived in Ilkuds. Like, not a joke. Same air, same street. And we were in separate cities, separate history, separate news stream. We now have that in America. You know what I'm saying? So that's that idea where as soon as you say Hillary Clinton, I take a deep breath and being like, because I literally don't even know if you and I will be discussing the same person from the ideas I bring in of her and you, you know, that you bring. Like, that's, we have it here now. You know, the best example I say in D.C. is I could put up like tests of reality, two pictures of two inaugurations, and, you know, we could get a poll downstairs and the room would split. Literally, people would say, you know, you would never know if you were right. Some people are going to say that photo with less people has more people like literally. I don't know if I'm right. You don't know if you're right. And that's what we have here now, like not alternate positions or not a deep, tense political time we suddenly have in America the split of reality and that totally fascinates me when you deal with ideologies when the realities break mm-hmm. and that's so israel palestine for sure that separate reality but the the other point that you were making which is you know i love when people are like oh people argue in israel it's the jewish country and i'm like first of all it's 20 percent arab mm-hmm. you know and then you break it and then i, I just uh back to podcasts i'm a big you know, I, I like like me some moth as well. But uh, I just did a story on the old city. Like, literally everything splinters. Any place you look at from the outside seems a monolith. You know, the same thing they could say in America now. What's happening in America? It seems people disagree, and the whole country is filled with Americans. But you break it down with, you know, you get to Israel, and people are like, oh, there's Sephardi and Ashkenazi. Like, first you get into the literal, you know, dark Jew, light Jew thing, right. like same people of color, like the same. I mean, there is literally Hapanterim Hashorim. There is a Black Panther Party of the, you know, North African Israeli Jews or Jews of Arab well, I think that's a misperception of, of, yeah. of Israel being kind of homogenous. And, and if you just understand the formation of the country in the first place, it was people coming primarily from Europe, but also from everywhere else. Oh, God. It's, you know, well, it's that's, a, yeah. yeah. So on the beautiful sense, like back to our, you know, from here, our melting pot idea, on the beautiful sense, it's awesome. You will eat so well there. <laughs> you know, the food is fantastic. You know, I love me some Yemenite jachnun and, you know, like all of, I will, you eat well there. But yes, it is just splintered upon splinter. And then, you know what I'm saying? Every religious part, it's a same as anywhere once you get into it that you know so it's yes if we talk about brokering peace we can't even talk today i'm calling it israel palestine peace but then as you said we're not even just getting down to right left we have to splinter every party and every religious group even just this idea i could say why i said the old city where you go there's the uh i was gonna reference there's the uh, muslim man who sits with the key to the church of the holy sepulcher you're like this is the place where jesus was entombed and rose you know like Mm -hmm. that idea he's his family's had the key he has a 500 year old key that he has because the 800 year old key broke like his family and you're like why would a muslim family need the key to the christian holy site because the ethiopian church wants this part and the franciscans have this part there's like everything is factions or even almost like gang signs you're like Hasidim, the guys with the long coats and the long side girls i'm telling you there's the guy with the white socks the guy with the short socks so yes it is like anywhere else if you you know treat everybody as human you're going to find out that it's infinitely splintered so even the conflict back to what people on both sides want becomes you know that much more Explosive back to this week, missiles have flown in. You know, missiles have been fired from, you know, I guess Sinai. I don't know if they were within Gaza, but that's the point. Even if Hamas is saying, you know, who's 
was generally when you think of missiles in Gaza, you right. say Hamas, it's like you have to control your breakaway groups and the breakaway of the breakaway well, like groups. Hamas is not even monolithic anymore. I mean, it, it's, it's no. you can say Hamas are the bad guys or Hezbollah is another good example of this. I know that's not specifically in that area, but can't you know talk about this area of the world where Hezbollah, the governance of Hezbollah may not have full control over what's happening in Lebanon the same way Hamas, the... You could talk well, to whomever. Yeah, and, it, they, and back to bad guys. Like, that's the whole point of this book is I don't pick bad guys in this book. Yeah. As someone who's been there, like, that's the point. I just wanted everyone to enter in the conversation. And trust me, like, my neighborhood was blowing up, you know, frequently, you know, during, yeah. the, during the height of that. And, and that's what I really want to look at. And, and, and also, by the way, the idea that we act like we don't know what's going to happen, it's, you know, it doesn't ruin uh, I've never. I'm so thrilled to be here. I've never had a book with spoilers before. I'm so literary and thinking. <laughs> literally, it was a, a light bulb going on over my head. I was like, "What if someone didn't write a book just for the music of language?" So whenever anyone's like, "I'll watch for spoilers," that's thrilling, yeah. you know, to me. But this doesn't give anything away. It's maybe like 30 pages before the book sent. It's one line. I literally have my map maker guy brokers the Hamas fata. You know he. In, in Gaza, right. like that just happened this week. I'm saying everything is so. So even when you talk about enemies and sides and but Fatah and Hamas, that they they just you know brokered unity again. Well, it has to be unbelievably know, frustrating. Which I saw, yeah, which I saw, like has to happen. Uh, anyway, right. just the inevitability of it, like it makes such sense from a strategic right. and unifying perspective. Well, it has to be incredibly frustrating because you take some couple steps forward, and then I, a couple weeks ago I read where um, an Israeli politician actually said. Why are you using the word Palestinians? There's no such thing as a Palestinian. I mean, that, that's that's like fundamental, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and, about, and and the oldest trope, you know, I don't know if it was again back to I know uh, I mean I take uh, again I can only imagine who's listening to this podcast so. Uh, you can have a grand time with all the facts that I'll get wrong. I'm a novelist. Once I start making stuff up, then I'll be like, oh, yeah, that is. The other day, I was like, on November 7th in yeah. Iowa City, Iowa. Someone's like, November 4th. I was like, on November 4th. <laughs> thank you. But uh, but even, I think it was maybe gold in my ear, who, you know, like this notion of denying uh, the Palestinians' existence as a, a, a people is, you know, yeah. That, that was gold That's in my old ear school prejudice. Ago, right? yeah, it's just yeah. it's, but it seems but, to be coming. Yeah. But, so let me ask you, in, in the United States, there's a bit of a generational shift. It, it's... It's rare on college campuses that you have a large conservative population. It tend, younger people tend to be more democratic voting, and that's if you're a Democrat, that's problematic because young people don't tend to vote. Is there a similar demographic shift in Israel, or does it does the are these problems transcend generations? I mean, is there hope for the future with the younger demographic in Israel? Oh, uh, then I surely don't have any statistical stuff on that and gut feeling again i went i haven't been you know now it's five years since last book tour i i read i'm obsessed i still have all my friends on you know my israeli friends mm -hmm. my you know uh i was gonna say it's so weird to be like my israeli friends my palestinian friends. some of yeah some of my best friends are on both sides. no but uh that notion uh oh i just think the universal blanket answer which is it better be hopeful for all of us, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, I don't care which way America swing. Like, I would like a planet. I would right. like peace. So all I'm saying to you is I, I, it's, it's, I really think about how few people it takes to, as I said, to create realities, to control realities, to put things. Peace, we all know, I feel like, back from that time, everybody knows what that peace is going to look like. And the thing that I hold on to, everybody, you know, whether it's, again, pick a country. People want to send their kids to school and have them come home safe. Right. Like this idea that peace is not in everyone's best interest is beyond me because I'm always ready. I've never written anything 
there is nothing I could think of to write more than this book where everybody is going to come to it with a, you know, a preconceived position that they're immobile on or fierce. You know what I'm saying? We right. could, I didn't want to have such easy metaphors in the States, but we already started. You, you say Hillary Clinton, you say Donald Trump. Like, it's not really an open conversation most of the time. Everyone's pretty. You want to touch right. those subjects? Like, people are coming to them, you know, with their, you know, just a grounded and, and ready, ready well, to... Well, so the rarities, I remember, like, a couple of days before the November election, there was a group of undecideds, and it's like, who the hell Yeah, how are you? Still yes, undecided. What more information right. do you need? What uh, else can we reveal? Oh, but but uh, yeah. So, on um, yeah, we can go yeah. onward. Well, no, I, I, what, you brought up the the '96 piece um, talks, which uh, I'm old enough. I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember them being front and center. Unlike today, where there's 200 things going on on, on the news, on Twitter, on everywhere else, that was like OJ level coverage. In nine, where it was 24 hours a day talking about the peace talks. Everybody was there. All eyes were on this part of the world. And now most of the attention is focused elsewhere, certainly in the United States. Yes. You know, and a lot of even Europe is focused elsewhere with when it, whether it's the, whatever you want to call the global war on terror or yeah. Korea or whatever else. Yeah. But the problem hasn't gone away. It's got gotten worse. Right. Um, but we're talking, you know, those are the things that interest me. I mean, if we're talking uh, the things that I glean about just wanting to write about reality and spycraft and all the thing. I think everything is intentional. It, different things serve different people. So that's part of the notion of like, when I was researching like, Oh, I'm going to build a spy. Like, what does this mean? How does that work? How does one do a mission? How mm -hmm. do you bait and switch any of that notion? And I feel like when so many things are getting done, it serves, I'm not a person with those kind of motivations, but we used to have singular messages, at, let's say at home, because people were trying to do singular things. So mm. you're saying, I'm trying to, whatever this is, like we're gonna, this, there's gonna be a message from the White House or something like that, a singular thing, and everyone in the administration right. is gonna be on point to get that message. This is to me a reverse play of that, which is we're gonna put out a thousand messages. Like I don't even know where to look, and I feel like, oh, that's, uh, strategically if you're trying to do a bunch of things that you want done and have people not pay attention to them that is the idea I, I don't it's i don't think it's ever been done before you know in this way in the states but yeah it's it's information overload like yeah. whatever your political stripe you won't know what to be mad about on right. any given day and i think but you have a point back to singular things when there was the news like what did 24-hour news do to our brains what is right my Twitter feed, do our brain singular news things. Yeah. I think that's all. If, if we're going to get to talking about what people believe attention and get somebody to look this way when you want to look that way. Yeah. Uh, I, I cannot believe the gigantic, like the world goes on and uh, yes, this was the, I, I thought they used to, you know, used to say the times might as well have their own section. There was right. at least every day, a huge Israel Palestine article. And I think that's why it became so pressing to me. The more peace recedes, the more this recedes from the spotlight, the more I'm like, this is critical and this is so e of the solve we'll have self-driving cars you know first like the amount of computing power and brain power and human power that it takes to do that is unseen on this planet it's extraordinary you know what i'm right. saying and i was like i i really can you know i i think on both sides everybody knows what this piece would look like and i was like let's execute that right i'll wait for my self-driving right. car let's get peace over there well, you, you talked about creating a spy uh, for this novel. So can you walk us through the research process for that? Because I think 
our listeners will always, and I will, I will be the one to lead them as a pie piper. We're always very skeptical. Yes. Of non-experts creating some kind of espionage. I mean, pop culture yeah. is is something that we we love, but we we cringe at the same time. The double-edged yeah. sword of spy yeah. pop culture. Yeah. Uh, it's teaching bad messages, but it's at least making people interested. So what, what did you do as an author to sit down and say, I want to make sure I get some of this right? Oh, so, well, then maybe this is where we cross over. Uh, and I can really, uh, again, it's fiction, so it's uh, basically break down my subconscious for you. But here's where I agree with what you're saying and those audience members that are like that. I write fiction, and I believe in craft so deeply and I think a reality has to be a functioning reality, like as real as the one we're in. Obviously, I can tell the difference. I haven't lost my mind. I always yeah. say, like, call a neurologist if you're like, when did that happen to me? Like, oh, I saw, saw that in a movie. You know, yeah. like, you have to be able to hold on to that. But fictional realities are really the only ones where we do remember that way. We say, oh, when did that happen to me? I read it. Like, I, it's so... I will take any compliments. We can have a compliment section of this podcast. <laughs> we can do a lightning round of compliments. But I'm saying the thing that really means the most to me that I hold on to as a writer, having, say, written about the Dirty War, which happened, you know, thousands of miles south in Buenos Aires when I was six years old, I spent years researching that because all I wanted is when someone who's lived the history say, how did you know? Or that's right. just how it was. I have the good fortune. I'm thankful for my readership to get to literally like meet someone from a family that I have researched, people from the history. And that's all I care about. So yes, you know, verisimilitude, accuracy, it really, really matters to me. Well, I can jump in and I can yeah. say that you wouldn't have gotten in the door. Yeah. If this wasn't realistic enough, yeah. I mean, we, we get just heaps of books and novels and everything yeah. else. And, and there is that weaning out process of looking at things and going, okay, this person actually has done a little bit of homework, you know, yeah. let's have, so, so there, there's your first compliment. Thank is you, that you, so you wouldn't be sitting here. Oh, good. Uh, well, well, if I this appreciate was garbage. That. So, so go, please yeah. go ahead. Well, I'm saying, but if we want to be, you know, if I could be extra literary prosody for a second, I learned this. I wrote, this story becomes an allegory. So, you know, anyone who might read it, it's a political thriller and then it's a weird, you know, m metafictional history of Israel, like in the battles, the 1973 war, 67. It's, you know, the general reliving Israeli history and then it becomes a love story. It has, you know, some genre bending stuff in it. But I wrote this one story. It was literally a fable, like you know, almost 20 years ago. And I had this old, old man, you know, an old rabbi perform, you know, he had a, to save his life. He had to do acrobatics. And I had him do like a triple flip in the rough draft. And then I thought back to what we're talking about, <laughs> that I, as someone who's not a gymnast could read that and think to save my life. Like I could really picture someone doing backflips to save his life. But I thought, what if a gymnast reads my book and he's going to say, I don't care if there's a gun to your head. Nobody who's been sitting on their can is going to get up at 85 years old and do a trip. And I made up the names. I, like it just changed me of obligation. I am obsessed with this notion that anyone who's had any experience about which I write better be able to enter into it. And the hardest part of this book for me, that Argentina book, I spent years researching because I'm not Argentine and had I went for a wedding, you know, but I literally that's this was a di I knew how much territory I had to get right. And I just was really interested. So, yes, I I teach in Paris. I've lived in Berlin. I spent all those years in Israel. The hardest part of this book for me, if anyone wants to get an advanced copy because it was a tight deadline, all those errors are in there was getting my sailing right. I haven't even ridden the Staten <laughs> Island ferry, but sailors you want. I don't want to mess with your spy people, but you're sailing, yeah. you're sailing, you know, NSA folk out yeah. there like they'll be yeah. on you and be like, you can't reach the tiller yeah. arm if you're that close to the There's jib. Some Navy guys out yeah. there. Yeah. So not be I literally, I tortured. <laughs> that was for me, honestly, the 
hardest part. But if you want to get to core, core, core basic stuff, it's when I moved to Israel everyone's fast i mean you just are like american boys you move to jerusalem and you know stuff is going on especially at that time i mean this is the height of you know the peace process and everybody's ever and i've got like five stories for you but one that and it's come up again and i watch you know there was the i i'm uh, sure again people out there but uh that footage of they they pieced together from you know, cameras i guess it was in dubai where that uh i guess an arms dealer somebody was killed in dubai that they you know charged the Mossad with it and they it was on so fake passports have always obsessed me because right when I moved there uh, back to what was on TV I watched it on a TV set back to singular news feeds when they'd stop all the channels and there were you know a few channels but uh, the piece with Jordan in the 90s mm -hmm. you know and right after that piece they Israel had dispatched two Mossad spies I think it was Khaled Mashal who was I think the head of the pol uh, maybe the political arm of uh, of Hamas, but nonetheless, Khaled Masha was in Jordan to spray aerosolized poison in his ear. So things that fascinate me right. at 26, these guys did it. They also, uh, if their job was to kill someone, then they didn't uh, succeed because he lived. But the point is, they got caught, which is not uh, I back to a lesson one of spying research. Right. If you get caught on your mission, and I read about it in the New York Times, you have not succeeded. Well, usually when you're reading about anything intelligence the related in the New yeah, York Times, right? That's badly, that's rule yeah. number one. Yeah. But the, the weird part, so first of all, this was a huge international incident. He was in the hospital. Israel sent the antidote. And to me, back to spying in the real world as a not spy, but the other thing is my buddy Sam has uh, now convinced that I am a spy because he's <laughs> like, wait, I, I'm on super giant book tour and I'm leaving the country tomorrow with my passport. He's like, wait, you get to travel everywhere and tell everyone what a bad spy you are? He's <laughs> like, this is the best cover I've ever heard. But, uh, oh, but, you know, so I just thought like, wow, countries actually make poisons and they actually make antidotes that blew my mind like not only and again i'm sorry for all the people you know there are human beings involved in this i'm talking about my head and what interests me so yes yeah, someone right. is poison this is yeah. violence all that stuff but nonetheless i'm like a poison was made and an antidote whether they sent it or told them what to give him that's bananas to me i just couldn't believe it but the other thing is there was a guy so much of this book is about empathy for me and disappearing empathy in this world and i don't care i'm not asking anyone to put themselves we can talk about existential threats and the chances people take so when i say peace anyone's out there like we can't have peace i'm like no i'm not asking you to risk your life but i don't understand what other option there is but to make peace but nonetheless a guy but so much of it's about me empathizing even with characters there was somebody i feel like he was around my age and canadian i remember that scene what was that movie uh, julia roberts and uh you grant where Oh, and well, Notting Hill. Notting or, Hill, or, and, and the buddy opens the door in his right, underwear, right. and everyone's flashing. Yeah. This is how I picture it. There was a guy, like, around my age. Like, I think he was Canadian, and I, as I said, friends, this is my memory. Look it up and find it, or yeah. it's morphed. But that he, it was, one of these spies had his passport. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I just think, like, the different roles. It got me interested in the different roles people play. Like, suddenly, you know, somebody has to be like, hey, uh, you know, Nate, uh, they caught that guy with aerosolized poison in Jordan. Uh, how come he had your passport? And you have to be like, I don't know. Like, I think that guy just packed up and moved home. And I never shook that notion. Like, this is his job. Yeah. You know, and that's part of, I reference that in the book when I start to research structures like cyanine. There's people who are operatives. And then there's people who are friendly to causes around the world, which was new to right. me and also fascinated me. Like, you know, you and I, I meet you today. And you know I live in Brooklyn. So, like... 
you know, you're like, oh, Nathan, I need to transport a body in a trunk, right. you know, and then I'm like, oh, I like, yeah, we had a good talk in D.C. Like, here's my car. I didn't understand things work that way. That yeah. fascinated me. Well, Israelis have assets everywhere, too. I mean, that's so they that, say, yeah, well, yeah. you know, like, yeah, well, that's the other best thing. So two things. So if you grew up with this idea and I'm secular now and again, you know, I grew up, you know, religious and you know, with a certain identity I've shifted now, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely, I think I would qualify to your listeners as lefty and, yeah. you know, secular and all that stuff. But the mystique of Mossad, it always made me laugh of like hearing from a friend. She'd be like, oh yeah, this guy, I met a guy in the Mossad. Like, what was he doing? She's like, he was a, a steam cleaning my carpets. I was like, that's probably not his post Mossad job. Yeah. So I also like all the things we know, but as you said, if you know it, the people who talk are not right. the, the one old man who I met, you know, when I was living there, I was like, I think you're a spy. He had like just elegant international motions, but he all he ever talked about anywhere was the food. He was in all the right countries at the right times for certain <laughs> things. And he'd be like, ah, you know, Buenos Aires, the steaks are delicious, <laughs> truly fine. Like what we're doing, he'd be like, you know, charity work, yes. very charitable man. <laughs> so I feel like that's the, the person who never says they're a spy is the only one. Right. No, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, you know, in the United States when people say, oh, I was in special forces or I was a SEAL. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like uh, exactly. Uh, yeah, okay. not, not that often. Oh, yeah. but the other point of like early interest, I haven't gotten to talk about this stuff it's fun to be here where this is like the center of what we're talking about was that people would get tapped for things like you know everyone people get not everyone friends would get a letter saying would you like to work in the foreign service friends you know when you had a good foreign passport and moved there would you like to work in the and you'd get invited to this building and we all understood like this might be that's probably the first portal towards you know service and as a, you know, long haired, mildly stoned, unpublished <laughs> fiction writer in like, you know, the like knit South American 80 pound itchy sweater, yeah. you know, I was always annoyed. I was like, they're really good. How do they know? I was so mad. I'm like, I would be a terrible spy and I totally wouldn't do it. But how do they know already even, you know, like a friend would be like, I got this weird letter. And I was like, I never got that now weird letter. my letter? Yeah. I really think that's one of the driving parts of this novel <laughs> that I didn't even pass the notion where like politically, emotionally, everything, like he is literally the anti-spy, like he's the worst. Well, you bring up an interesting point that I want to ask you about, and that's the relationship with Israel, with Jewish Americans. Because I... I grew up around this in South Florida. Half my friends were Hispanic, usually Cuban. The other half were Jewish. Um, and, and despite what people like me, meaning a non-Jewish person, would like to think, it's really not as simple as, a, 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 you know. Oh, you were headed to the loyalty issue? Is yeah, this, no, I mean, yeah, in yeah. that direction. I mean, I, I remember, I think back as a diplomatic historian looking at the Cold War of when JFK was running for president. And. The, the obnoxious, very racist, very anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic sentiment, yeah. saying that what happens when the Pope tells JFK to do something? I mean, you can see this certainly with some Jewish American politicians oh, and God, people the, questioning this, their this, allegiance. This is this States. is age old, like yeah. age old prejudice. Like it's, I'm saying it's not even worth entertaining because it's just straight prejudice like this idea i was gonna say let, we can go downstairs and count by part you know let's go look at your spies but it's it's that notion back to how we get news how things yeah. are you know listed i mean we think about this i'm a storyteller and i look at the words we choose like how we paint this person but yeah that is so age old back to russia that's the dawn of time from adversos today so that's two thousand years old it's the my point is back to things that have to hold water. It's really odd to choose one people and say like yeah. this, you know what I'm saying?
saying like right. can you have a you know a packers fan on, on like working in new york i mean yeah. it's the idea to pick a singular thing yes it, it's I would tell you that this is about ownership of identity, which is another, you know, back to the part where you're saying, okay, you're on my spy bag. The other, like, sort of thinky literary parts of my book that obsessed me, which is you're getting back to identity. It was a real shock to me with my first book. You know what I'm saying? I am a Yankee and I have a little, I have a great grandfather born in, you know, Louisville in Kentucky. So, but we're otherwise pretty yeah. New York, New England, you know, Brooklyn and Boston. But uh, I had a, lived in an apartment building and this guy that I used to, I used to switch hats. I'm not a big baseball fan. <laughs> and he said to me, you cannot wear a Yankees hat and then a Red Sox hat. I was like, but my family split. He's like, no, pick one. Yeah, there really building. isn't a way to kind yeah. of, that, that's, well, I won't say it's worse than Israel. Yeah, I was just, I was headed for the same that ballpark, that'll yeah. be That'll be my, my next book. Yeah. But even that notion where when my first book came out and I suddenly found out and then, Again, you know, I received such support for it. I'm so thankful for it. And, you know, both from inside the community and out, but like really like beyond my wildest dreams. But then I was suddenly a Jewish American writer. And that's exactly what you're talking about, like that. I was a hyphenate. Like, right. you know, what I'm saying my all, my parents are from here. My grandparents like to my great grandparents. It's my great greats. Like we are here. We are as American as they come, you know, as a, that's a, you know, I never heard any old country accents. I say Boston accent is the only accent that right. I ever heard that wasn't, you know, New York or Long Island. So that notion that from the outside, this is a, like, I, I love that you, you brought it up, but that is exactly the point, which is how we perceive others. And you are perfectly welcome to sit across at the other mic and see a Jewish guy. But this idea that I'm expected to look in the mirror and, you know, is, and see a Jewish, that's bizarre to me. I get to see me and, right. you know, like, like a normal, you know, like that's the point. I say pretty much every character in every book is Jewish. And I say, but I've never written a word about, I write about people. That's my default thing. And I think that's that notion that it's so, yeah, that age old prejudice is also part of this book about what it means, what loyalty means, right. but everything in this book is flipped. So it's not an American betraying in America. It's an American betraying Israel, you know, like everything's a flip, but where I really got it from is uh, and we can talk about him uh, and we could talk more about identity and flipping identities on the personal literary memory front, like what it means, you know, uh, you know, uh, that I used to wear a yarmulke, like all those notions of who you are to other people. But uh, yeah, Prisoner X is really where we get to the idea of loyalty to me right. and not my Z, the actual the Prisoner X from Australia. Well, let me let me flip everything around. We've been kind of coming at things from from the left, but I. There is a, a, a argument to me, man. Everything's in the gray area here. So let's entertain yeah. the darker gray side of yeah. this for a little bit. Now, interesting. Dark, dark's where I shine. The, the attitude about defense in Israel, it's impossible to blow this off. I don't care how, how open you are to Palestinian-Israeli reconciliation, how much you actually might think that the Israelis are wrong in some cases. It's impossible to not see... Israel as a nation state that is surrounded by people who hate them and and well a lot of people I mean it's gotten different um and, and so the philosophy but, and, and oh, sorry, yeah. you want to speak go ahead go ahead no I, yeah you can't see me back to yes back to cultural yeah. generalizations I'm gesticulating wildly but um no this is that is a core part of this book when I talked about the empathy thing it was really this idea is I just can't understand anyone and this is my point when you do I say this to my like writing students where I say the student who just is pure of soul you know, literally just pure of soul and wants to make art and succeed. And the one who's like, I want to succeed, but not unless everyone else fails, you do the same, you know, thing. Like that's the the way to get to writing, you know, to succeed as a writer. It doesn't matter. Like, you know, good hearted, bad, 
you just got to do your work. And, but on this notion, that's what, that's really, or you like jump right to the core of this book. If you don't have empathy, I don't understand how you're going to do things. I mean, I watch that. Like when you talk about the choices that people, you know, make like militarily in the U S where you're like, Oh, I'm so surprised that this is the reaction. I'm like, had you just read the New York post for seven years straight, I could have told you what was going to happen because this is what happened last time we did this thing. So I'm saying to you to lack empathy, to not understand the other side, whether you just, I mean, those are, that's the split of this book, the general and prisoner Z prisoner Z is acting out of empathy and the general's acting out of straight military strategy and i think you'll come to the same thing but i grew up as a religious kid you know in a you know pro-israel community i grew up with this notion yes israel surrounded by enemies are trying to push them into the sea that's what i grew up with but what i explore in this book is the people of gaza surrounded by israel and egypt who have no passports who have to get like medical exemption if you get into Mm -hmm. whatever harvard for school and then you can't go because they won't you know you can't get a pass there's four hours of electricity a day right now or whatever it is like that notion I just want to know, you can't see that, like, they may say we are, like, it's right. flipped metaphor. So that, that's what the conversation of this book is, where every character is doubled, every story is doubled, and everything is reversed. I get that. It's a Hebrew concept called hafuch halafuch, the opposite of the opposite. So it's not to say, oh, that is not a way, a, a you know, metaphor which Israel can grab onto, but I'm like, oh, can't, why do Gaza, you know, can't Gaza grab the same metaphor? Right. Pretty much everything you can say for this story, you know, it'll, it'll be that notion, which, uh, you know, a, a right wing Israeli might say to me like, oh, these, you know, a Palestinian, he's has the key to his house. It's already been 50 years. And I'll be like, but as Jews, we waited 2000 years, right. you know what I'm saying? So it's, I feel like every metaphor here flips so I can, and I better be willing to hear both sides, which I am, which is the whole point of well, this book. Not to give spoilers away. Yeah. Um, but there, there is a kind of scene in the middle of the book where um, a Palestinian and a Mossad agent um, are kind of talking to each other. Yes. They've just kind of discovered who each other yeah, are. Yeah, well, yeah. Yusuf on both both yeah, knew yeah. everybody. And you've, as a audience, has discovered who yeah, they yeah. are. And they're totally antithetical to one another. But at the same time, you see there's a connection between the two of them. And I had a hard time rooting for either of them. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I see both their points. Yes. Right? I mean, that's all I tried to build. And it's also tragic because you're like, the Palestinian has to do something. And you're like, no, you don't. Yeah. Right? You know, and it's one of the, and you can see the pleading. But at the same time, you're like, I get why you have to do that. And it goes back to, you know, the idea of, um, most of the the philosophy in the industrialized world, when when you're attacked, tends to be something called a reciprocal response, right? They kill ten of our dudes, we go blow up a training camp. Israel's never been able to, or they've argued they've never been able to live within that philosophy. That I, it's, they kill one of ours, we kill a hundred of theirs. Make it too expensive yeah. to kill Jews. I mean, look at Operation Wrath of God, yeah, the response yeah. of the Munich Olympics massacre, all that stuff. And you know, it, it's it's this kind of philosophy that both sides seem to have adopted now well, where you can't just let things go because then you're kind of asking for it the next time. So that gets back to me living on the street and living in Jerusalem. So that's it. When we talk the, you know, my hand is high above my head. When we talk about like military choices, government choices, you know, the truly historical choices that y- you make when you run, if you're, you know, running a nation, you know what I'm saying? If you're a leader, I just was on the street and I couldn't get over that reciprocity thing. Like I just, as someone in, as a civilian living in my neighborhood that blew up a lot, I just couldn't understand that point that you're making, which is if, you know, and again, whatever your politics, 
whoever I start with here, just flip it in your head. It's, it, that's, that's my point. I, I'm exploring those cycles, which is, you know, Hamas, let's say, would blow up something in my neighborhood, blow up a, my coffee shop, blow up my market as a way to avenge something. And I'd say, don't you understand? You've just killed, if you understand the system, you've just killed Palestinians. And then Israel, you know, which is in the book, like they drop a, you know, again, it doesn't ruin anything, but aside from the historical loss, but this is the fictionalized, mm -hmm. you know, drops a one ton bomb on populated Gaza, you know, to avenge me. I just was living in my neighborhood. like, you're avenging me, you know, like, right. and then the next week, you know, the university blows up and I was like this I just could I, I can understand the strategic thinking what I what I want to marry why it's fiction versus I know you have a lot of nonfiction readers out here what I want to explore is we can talk military and we could talk strategy and be all high-minded and intelligence choices I was just on the street I couldn't understand who anyone thought they were protecting when they hit the other side if you know we're in this circle we you're we're going to hit back. They're going to hit back. And I, I was going to lose my yeah. mind. And, and I think most many of our listeners are, are have fought in one way or another, whether it's the military and yeah. intelligence agency in both of the, you know, not both, many of the different asymmetrical wars that we're yeah. fighting right now, yeah. Iraq, Afghanistan, but also in other places yes. uh, where the military and the intelligence community is, is deployed. And, and they understand, I think, at a fundamental level that it's very difficult just to kill one dude because collateral damage happens and then you've made 10 new bad guys. Yes. Or even if you can take out the one guy, you may have still made 10 new bad guys in this well, never ending war, which, you know, we've been, we, we, if we had watched what was happening in the last 50 years in Israel with the Israel yeah. Palestinian thing, you would have just seen that happening nonstop. Yeah. Well, so now, yeah, you're on another favorite subject of mine, which is chaos theory, yeah. you know, which you just watch history and you're like, you just, you know, you're doing, that's what I say. If we assume, well, we're talking about assassination. I was going to say assume goodwill. I don't know what you assume. But but nonetheless, the chaos theory part is, yeah, also, you know, really obsessed me. But that's why I have this general character and I explore it who is, you know, I back to things that readers, that's even too loaded for a book that is loaded. I didn't call my general Sharon. He's not Sharon. He's my general. But that notion where, so so can I talk about Prisoner X? And oh, absolutely. To, yeah. What's, I mean, again, you don't call him Sharon, but yeah. I, I, I did go and. Lot, the prime uh, minister between oh, okay yeah. okay i know you're talking about that yeah, yeah. Go ahead. well so so this notion so back to what you know there's the conscious the prisoner z in this book and the general represent like my conscious brain and my unconscious so the conscious thing was i was leaving israel for my last book tour and on the front page of this paper was the story of asir x prisoner x prisoner x who literally there's the, you know thank you to kafka for the kafka s shorthand to say it was kafka-esque but here is a guy who was, you know, disappeared into the system as far as we know. Like, none of anybody outside knew he was there. But I thought, oh, he's hung himself. Prisoner X has hung himself. He is dead now. He's hung himself in a cell. But I was like, wait, until the moment of hanging, like, until he was dead, he'd never lived. And until the moment of, you know, hanging himself from the top of the cell, there was no cell from whence right. to hang. You know, like, this reverse reality. I was like, oh, now that we have a body hanging from the top of the cell, we have someone who was living in that cell. That fascinates one part of my brain. But what got me back to your loyalty question was, uh, you know, this notion he was so similar to me in so many ways like around my vintage he was australian you know i'm american but this idea that like 
you know, he, maybe he got more Zionist Israel and I got more biblical Israel, but we'd both moved there. Like he'd moved to a country. And when you talk about loyalty, I thought he'd moved to a place. He'd adopted its ideology. Moving is already a big deal. Mm -hmm. He'd so adopted its ideology. He'd, he joined the Mossad, like their vaunted, you know, spy service. Again, the one day I don't need to explain that. And then is doing deep cover with just scares me to death. You know, that notion of what it is to like be in deep. And then what we, all we knew is he was, you know, Israel had locked him at one of their own as a traitor. So I thought we know why those stories fascinate me. Like I love whether it's fiction, nonfiction, anything about traitor. I can't wait to go downstairs here. Mm-hmm. But I love that. I, you know, it fascinates me. It's always usually we can know blackmail's obvious failure of character, you know, passed over the frustrated. Mm-hmm. Like we know all the reasons that people flip. And then, you know, people who don't know they're colluding. We've got the million reasons, but what I'd been waiting 20 years for, I said, what would it take to flip someone over empathy back to your surrounded by enemies and my double metaphor? Like what would it take to have someone in deep and just feel for the other side so that he flips it? So, so that's the empathetic ideology. Yeah. It's one of the, we we call it in a a very simplified way of looking at reasons for committing treason. Ideology uh, is one of the kind of, there's four and ideology is one of the ones that stands out and it doesn't happen all that much anymore. It was big, Back in the 1930s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When a lot of American and Western intellectuals yes. were kind of embracing the idea of socialism and communism. Yes. It hasn't been all the that hollow big. nickel. Yeah. Well, you know, everyone from, you know, all the professors and others who looked at during the Great Depression, yeah, who looked yeah, at yeah. the Soviet system as the future. And then you see it happening in the American sense a little bit with the war on terror for people going over to ISIS and others. But most of them weren't former CIA doing it. But right, right. ideology hasn't been a big issue. And that's kind of what I'm talking about with empathy here. Yes. But yes. it does happen. And when it does, yeah. it kind of opens everybody's eyes to, like, how do we stop this from happening? Yeah. So, yeah. Ex- anyway, it's thrilling to talk to you about this. Yeah. Again, I'm obsessed with this part of it. I don't get to talk about it that much, but that's the point. Like, I love all, the, I mean, they're terrible. I mean, this is about nuclear, you know, right. but like these guys, these university students who'd been given a new life here and passing off, like, exactly that. Like, I've, yeah. It's been a long time to see that kind of stuff. Like, it's usually clear that the, the other reasons, you know, that someone's, you know, flipping. But that's that's one side of this book that I want to look at, the empathy flip. But when you talk about the general, and why didn't use the name Sharon? I have Arafat as Arafat and Perez as Perez and Olmert as all. There's so many historical, Ben-Gurion, like, listed as themselves, is that Sharon really is too loaded a figure to me. The people who support him and are diehard loyalists and believe in him, they believe in him for his warring and his fighting and right. his killing. And everyone who loathes him is for the exact same yep. thing for you know what I'm saying so it's like oh he saved Israel in this war and like and then he did you know the Kibya massacre exactly what you're saying about he is the one I have you know almost you know verbatim as you're talking about in the book he was the one where it's like you know like the Kibya massacre which I fictionalize in here but you know where a terrorist not the non-political terrorist, the actual terrorist, a guy with a hand grenade throws it into a house with a woman and children and kills people. And then he went into Kibya and blew up half the village, you know, with, you know, says they announced, they cleared the place, but I, you know, I can't remember if it was 60 or 70 people, but, you know, just, you know, scores of people killed. You know, that notion, that is too loaded a man because mm-hmm. I, I needed people to enter into the conversation. I built my general. But what I want to talk about is about the strat- piece as strategy it fascinates me. I could have used Rabin, but Rabin, I feel like he really did believe in peace. You know, mm-hmm. and, and by the way, you know, when we think of the people who 
you know, as a dove, like that's the, as the head of military and first intifada, he's the one who said, break their bones. Yeah. That was the order he gave of like, you know, teenage stone throwers. He's a tough guy, who, but I feel like he truly adopted peace and truly felt for the Palestinian people and both sides and wanted a good future for both. Sharon, I don't think he ever had any love for anyone or cared about anything but Israel and defending Israel. This is the father of the settlements with a house in the Muslim quarter with a big flag out front. You know what I'm saying? Literally the father of the settlements and a warrior, if it wouldn't have gone nuclear or Russia, you know, again, people probably know more than me. I think he would have taken Cairo. He would have gone north forever and south forever. Yeah. He said he was going into Beirut for a day. It was a 20-year quagmire of a war. So this is a fighter. And the fact that he pulled out of Gaza, I just couldn't stop thinking about that. I was like, he's not doing it out of empathy, I don't think, or because he feels for, I'm saying that I think any leader, you know, who would take over country or job is to ensure the best future. And I really think that he, even he understood, not Rabin, I, I've never met either man, but in just imagining, that's the difference between a nonfiction book, I sit in my room and I dream all right. day. But I get to say, I really think he saw that as like the next war to fight. Like he wouldn't have, he, it was not done out of a territorial concession like that from him. I think was his, you know, vote for peace. And back to your chaos theory, if Yigal Amir hadn't shot Rabin, if Sharon yeah. had listened to his doctor, what a tough guy. He had a stroke and they're like, please stay near the hospital. And he went down to his ranch because he loved his ranch. But then he was a big man and hard to move. And by the time they got him back, it was, you know, too late. Yeah. So, Well, sometimes, I mean, you look at American history, there were times when only the hardliner could bring peace oh, always and that's yeah. israel begging the sinai yeah. like right nobody would trust nobody from the left could have given back you know return done the egyptian peace treaty they needed you know a guy that yeah the people who are most right most conservative trusted and said he yeah. is not going to endanger that's american us. history nixon yeah. opens china reagan reaches out to gorbachev yeah. if it was carter forget yeah. it Right. If it was Kennedy for I yeah. mean, it had to be somebody who had the chops yeah. to say, I'm not weak yeah. on whatever right, right. to do that. Yeah. Perce yeah. All about perception. And this gets us back to the book. Perception, yeah. perception, who people think other people are. Well, let's know? wrap this. Well, let's wrap this up by looking at the future. I mean, I, I, the book has, you know, issues of of kind of cynicism, but also there's there's hope in this. Netanyahu is arguably the most hardcore not the military background, but as far as being, oh, yeah, you yeah. know, the most stringent. Yeah. He seems to be the person that could, if he yeah. wanted to, yeah. snap his fingers and change just about anything. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. Oh, oh, you know, and this is it. Then we get to the, you know, the practical part of it. Like, you know, I as I'm saying, having lived there, and I always use it, so I think it's an Amos Oz quote, the difference between a peacenik and a pacifist. I think that's really clear. Like, I think people often confuse, like, and, and I attribute it to him, and I hope correctly, I hope it's him, and I hope I'm getting it right. But that's how I always felt like I am a, I am a you know, peacenik, not a pacifist. That is, if you come to kill me, I'm not looking to get dead. You know what I'm yeah. saying? If you come from my family, right. like we will, do, you know, like, so I think it's that notion where I feel like this, that there is no, I, I don't know what to work towards, but peace. And when people are resistant to that, I think they're hearing a different thing. Nobody's asking anyone to commit suicide or endanger everyone. But I do think as a strategic option, I don't understand what else ensures a future for everyone. Well, Nathan Englander is the author of the novel Dinner at the Center of the Earth. That's what we've been talking about now for the last hour. I was, again, I get a lot of stuff. I was not only pleasantly supply, surprised at the correctness of a lot of the intelligence stuff inside the book, which is always nice. 
Uh, but sometimes you get a book that's unbelievably correct but boring as hell. And I, I, obviously you are an incredibly accomplished writer. So you get a chance to read something entertaining and make you think. And at the same time, it gets most stuff right, which a combination that doesn't exist very often in the wild. So thank you, Nathan, for taking the time oh, what an to honor. talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you so much.